Legends of Media Research is a podcast series featuring interviews with the media industry's leading researchers, where we go behind the scenes, sharing stories from their greatest achievements and challenges. Brought to you by Media Science, the leader in media and advertising innovation research. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information about media science. But for now, I'm your host, Media Science CEO, Dr. Dwayne Veron. Welcome to another exciting episode of Legends of Media Research. I'm really excited today because we have a true legend in our midst in uh, Bruce McCall, who's the former CMO of Mars. You know, we, we talk about this uh, exclusive club that we have within our legends of people who generated at least a billion dollars in value to their company. There's no question that Bruce falls within that camp. In fact, by my estimation, he was doing about half that on an annual basis every year. And you'll discover why as we go into the, the uh, podcast today. Bruce is one of those people who I think every CMO should really learn from. There's, there are lessons in today's podcast that, that I think every CMO and everybody who, who interacts with CMOs would really benefit from. So I think you're going to really enjoy today's podcast. So Bruce, without further ado, thank you for joining us on Legends of Media Research. You truly are a legend and we're thrilled to have this opportunity to get to interview you. Thanks, Dwayne. I'm not sure about the legend, Monica, but uh, I'm happy to be here. It's always, always good to talk to you. I, I was joking with you because, you know, when I asked Bruce to do the show, he said, I don't know if I'm a legend. And I said, you see, that's the difference between an Australian and an American. You know, the Australian says, I don't, I don't know if I'm a legend. And the American says, don't you have a category for super legends? <laughs> So welcome to the show. Thanks. Bruce, now, you know, your, your career is remarkable. I mean, almost all of your career, except for your, your first job for maybe five or six years, really the rest of your career was with Mars, with, with one company. How did you go from, you know, your entry-level job, which as I understand it was really as a brand manager for kind of like a second tier brand, you know, within the Mars community. How did you go from, you know, getting a job as a, a marketing manager kind of in Australia you know, all the way to becoming global CMO at Mars. How did that happen? I, I really scratched my head off and try and figure out that as well. I think I put a lot down to, you know, when you see opportunities, you respond to them. Yeah, there was never a structured glide path for me to get from one role to the, to the next. But uh, I think if you continue to, to enjoy what you're doing, you continue to learn. And when opportunities present themselves and you'll say, I'm ready to move and your family, and I, I do uh, really... <laughs> have to signal out the, uh, the contribution of the family who are sitting happy to move from Australia to New Zealand to Russia to England, uh, all around the world, then you can take advantage of those opportunities. Now, the pivot really in your career really was your, your appointment to the, the Russian gig from Mars. Um, maybe you can tell us a little bit of, about that. Sure. Uh, it was. I look back and I, I think that probably transformed my thinking from a purist brand manager, marketing, uh, thinking to really understanding what you need to do to, to manage a business. And I was on a massive steep learning curve and surrounded by really you know, incredibly capable people there. But you know, about a month after I landed in Russia, uh, and actually the week my family joined me, the Russian economy collapsed. That was back in 1998. And uh, that was just an amazing period of time, both individually and personally, and how do you cope with that when, you know, basically you've, you've moved to a country under one scenario and then, you know, it's very different. And from a business point of view, Mars 
was, you know, as a privately owned firm, uh, it had taken a long-term view on on uh, Russia and had invested hundreds of millions of dollars. So we're, we're on track that year to make our first ever profit. But in the space of uh, three or four months, we lost over $50 million. So, you know, it's a significant impact from a, a country the size of Russia. And I think it was what was unique was that we had the owners at the time, uh, the owners of the business who were also running the business at the time, uh, John and Forrest Mars, visit us uh, and and their feedback was liberating. They said, we're here for the long term. We can, we can absorb some losses. And you had publicly listed companies pulling out of Russia uh, and they told us double down. So you, know, you need to find the solutions. You need to find you know, how you're going to sustain a business that is just basically being cut by 70%. Uh, and how do you regrow that? But we had you know, the luxury of being a privately owned business that said, you know, we're looking 10 years, 20 years out. And the investments we want to make now are going to be pay out in, in that time. And it, and it has. So Russia is a very important market for, for Mars. So you went on, I think, around 2006. You, you got elevated into the CMO role, a, a role you held for a good decade before you retired. Now, now a decade is a long time in CMO lifespan. <laughs> <clears throat> CMOs are generally measured in you know, two year tenures, you know, 10, a, a, a decade. I mean, that, that, that was a, a long haul, but you know, uh, Bruce, I want to tell you the, the first time I met you, um, you had invited me to speak at, uh, at, at an event that you had in a gorgeous chalet and in, in outside of Paris and France, that was really France, special. Yeah. And, and I remember how impressed I was by you, not, you know, not just by, you know, your swagger. I mean, you're a very cool guy, you know, not just your swagger and, and, and the, the, the talks that you gave, which were very inspiring, but I want you to know what it was. It wasn't actually you. It was the team that you had and the extent to which your religion was infused in the way they then looked at the world. And, and what I mean by that, Bruce, is that you came to Mars. I mean, you evolved at Mars and developed a very particular view about the role of empirical generalization in science and how decision-making needs to be governed by that, that, that evidence. And you know, it's one thing for a leader to hold that view. It's something entirely different to see that very particular worldview infused in the way the team thinks about stuff. You know, more particularly at Mars, because Mars is actually a relatively decentralized kind of company. You know, it's not the kind of corporation where you have this central think kind of like prevail. These are independent thinkers who have drank the Kool-Aid and came to, to believe in your, your particular worldview. And of course, that was highly impactful for the organization. But I remember thinking how impressed I was that here is a leader, a CMO, who has all these people in this room who share you know, his, his particular uh, worldview. And that, that, that is just such a huge achievement. And you know, the achievements that you uh, scored from Mars were not just in the, on the empirical side of what you did, it was also what you did to the culture at Mars. And we really wanna talk about that in today's podcast about how it is that you actually helped cultivate a very particular kind of culture and an environment around how things were done, not just around kind of like a lot of the, the crucial uh, decisions, you know, that, that, that went in. I think that uh, probably sums up the Mars leadership culture as well, because we, as you said, we're a very decentralized organization. 
we. I'm still saying we five years after I've left. <laughs> they are a very decentralized organization. It means you've got a small amount of people in the center. And it also means that you can't do things yourself. So and I, I remember the first lesson I got as a brand manager for a pharmaceutical firm I was working with. And I, I was pretty combative brand manager. I used to you know, go up and fight the colleagues, do all that type of thing. And, and, and my marketing director pulled me aside and he gave me this piece of advice. So it was very early in my career. And he said, your personal success is going to be wholly dependent upon what you can encourage and get people to do around you, not what you do yourself. And that stuck with me. It took a while for me to learn <laughs> about that. But I realized when I came into the CNO role that you know, we've got thousands of marketing associates around the, the world making decisions every day that I cannot possibly think to get involved in, but I had to figure out a way to influence it. So sending the culture was very important. And the, the team that you saw, the, the leadership team from each of the segments, they came on that journey with me. And I think that was a, the key thing. It wasn't me, you know, discovering this myself and going out and saying, you know, from top of the mountain, this is how you shall do it. It was you know, opening the doors and letting them come and discover the things that I had time to learn about as well. I think that that is a, a key element that if everybody's part of that discovery and feel feel comfortable to put their hand up and say, hang on, you know, I'm not comfortable with this area. I want to challenge this area, then you get to a better place. Now let's go back in your journey. You came into the role as CMO and, you know, you walk into this, this, this new gig and, and of course you're going to, you know, you, you're trying to figure out what your approach is going to be about somewhere along the way, you discovered the Ehrenberg Bass Institute and their particular, you know, religion again, around marketing as a science and about this evidence, you know, that, that has to be there to kind of like guide those decisions. I understand that when you first encountered, you know, Byron and the team at, at Ehrenberg Bass, you, you, you had a little bit of a tussle with them you didn't quite <laughs> buy into a lot of what they were saying <laughs> no it was it was very i mean it's and I, again you know serendipity these things connect about a year earlier i was uh vp of marketing for pet care in europe and uh so I, yeah my career was pretty well established by that that phase but we'd invited uh Ehrenberg bass and another guy, Thomas Bain, Byron and Thomas Bain, they come in and run sessions for us called Creating Strategy of Desire. And they were basically there to challenge us. And Byron, for those that have not met Byron, he, he doesn't hold back in terms of when he sees something and he believes something. So he spent a couple of days basically telling us we were wasting the Mars family money. We were not doing appropriate marketing approach. We didn't really know how brands grew or how, how you should uh, invest behind them. And he got under most of our skins. He got under my skin. And I spent the next three months going back and looking at data from a point of view I'd never looked at before, trying to prove him wrong. And much to my, my horror, at first, I realized that he was right. 50% of you know, what I'd done before was ill-informed. And it changed my whole approach. You know, not many marketers come up through a scientific background. So just having the discipline of how do you look at data, coming up with hypotheses, going out and testing it and learning from that isn't something that you're taught. So, uh, you know, that was a, a, a big shock for me. And then a year later, uh, I roll up on the first day of my job at CMO and I sit down with the other, uh, the other team on the leadership team, members of the leadership team and, and ask them what can marketing do better? And, I'll always remember the response I got from the CFO, uh, Olivier Goudet, a French guy who incredibly bright. 
and he said, "Listen, Bruce, I've, yeah, I have a lot of respect for for marketing. You guys do a great job. You know, you really drive uh, our our media and our advertising, and yeah, produce brilliant ads." And, and I said, and "I said, come on, I'm not the chief advertising officer. Yeah, you know, I, I want to be thinking we have a bigger influence than just what's the next ad we do." And he looked at me and he said, "Listen." There are certain individuals I have a lot of respect for. Our CEO at the time was a, was a, an ex-marketer, a brilliant guy, Paul Michaels. And Olivia said, if you put 10 marketers in a room and ask them, how do you grow a business? You'll get 11 different answers back. <laughs> and he said, I see this all the time, but there is no, there is no you know, framework to sit there and say, this is what drives growth. And so when I combined those two things a year earlier with Byron challenged me around the frameworks for growth and the evidence of how things grow. And then Olivia basically saying he doesn't trust marketers to have an input on growth because it depends on who you talk to, you get, you know, 180 degree different uh, philosophy. That kind of set my whole agenda for the next 10 years, which was how do we drive an evidence-based culture that, you know, the CFO can look at and say, I trust you have credibility coming to the to the table to talk about growth. Uh, and so we had to align the organization around an evidence-based approach to doing that. And you know, evidence for me, I hear this word, this term bandied around. Evidence-based is not thing, listening to a couple of focus groups and coming back and saying, yeah, I've got 12 people saying I'd love to do this. Evidence is actually, yeah, you, know, you can actually get some repeatability around what you perceive classic science, you know, you see something happening, you repeat it, you repeat it, and that gives you predictability. And, you know, when we're sitting and managing a, uh, a large multinational business and figuring out where we spend billions of dollars of resources, you want some level of predictability when you're spending somebody's, somebody's money on that. And I, and I think you're raising a really important principle. And again, this is one that I would implore the audience to really spend some time reflecting on and not just kind of like uh, think they understand this because it's such an important part to your story, certainly, that not all data is the same. That when we say evidence-based, that doesn't mean just data. There are a lot of people who are going out there getting lots of data, maybe crap data, <laughs> it might be good data, who knows, like it's just data. And and really this this is the the start of, I think, you know, your success, Bruce, was, you know, you went with data and, and for the benefit of the audience, what we mean by single source is measuring the same people in terms of both their exposure to the advertising and media, but also their ultimate purchase, uh, ideally consumption of, of, of that product. And so for the same people, we're tracking both kind of inputs and outputs, if you will. And, and Bruce, you know, this at a time when Many in the industry are really moving away from single source data. You know, it's expensive, certainly. And so a lot of people thought, oh, you know, it's just too expensive for us to really justify, especially with a lot of the new metrics that are now kind of like easily and, and cheaply available in the marketplace. And at that very point in time, you know, you pursued, you know, building up this, this, this evidence-based approach using single source data, you know, to understand whether your ads were succeeding or or not in terms of translating into sales yeah and i think we were drowning in data uh i think most companies do drown in data uh, and i remember you know sitting in europe when i was in an operational role days on end with you know, 20 or 30 people sitting in rooms going through brand health trackers that honestly i'm telling you were not giving us any sort of predictability they were saying one yeah you know, that they would change from meeting to meeting they were never predictive of what would happen the opportunity cost of that is huge, not just in the dollars you spend, but in the management time that it 
it absorbs and then in the bad decisions you make based on, on d- data which is not predictive so when I got exposed to the single source and we had a you know, we had a, a think tank team uh, of, of different types of uh, I suppose academic heroes within Mars that were tasked with different different challenges whether that be predicting crop prices on cocoa years out and well, how can we do that more reliably through to predicting which advertising works and they were really pushing us as a marketing group around single source and when they showed me the results out of some pilots I'd done in France in uh, Europe sorry I realized one there is a big need and for me when I look at research there's always why do we want to do the research what's this business challenge that we're trying to overcome or shine a light on and then when and how do we apply it and then how do I know it's working so that's the kind of framework that, that I always applied when they showed me this data it basically said about 40 percent of our media money was behind effective advertising advertising actually had a big impact at the household level when they saw our ad which meant about 60 percent was doing marginal or nothing impact on our, our dollars and when you're talking in billions of dollars of of ad uh, spend per year across the globe then you can quickly see how much money you're wasting so we championed that we looked at okay what are the top and, eight and markets to be fair to, to be fair bruce you would have to say that mars was doing a better job than most of the other players on the block E- even it did look delivering... like and it was pretty equivalent, actually. So yeah, at that, no one was you know in our categories, no one was you know seventy percent of their media spend was behind effective advertising. We set ourselves a target to say, okay, we want to to at least target seventy percent and move beyond that. Albeit this is on video format advertising, whether it's free to air or whether it was online, but it was video format advertising. But it was it was so stark, and we did get pushback. We did get pushback from certain markets that talked about the expense. You know, it was going to cost us hundreds of thousands of dollars to put this in place per year, but they were spending hundreds of millions of dollars. The US market did push back. And we looked at the media budget. It was hun- literally hundreds of millions of dollars that we're spending. And we don't know which creative works. And we're not quite 100% sure on what the media flooding or waiting frequency is really impacting within that category. But that's a no-brainer. You know, so this is predictive. predictive. We've got to take the the guesswork so for, out of this. For the benefit of our audience, let's flash forward. So you started at the start of this challenge, you, you did this exercise, you worked out that 40% of your spend was effective, 60% waste. You set a target for 70%. Did you ever reach that target? Yeah, I think, I mean, and again, I look at the CMOs of each of the individual segments who were driving this relentlessly. And yes, we did. We exceeded the, the 70%. It becomes quite easy when you've done, it sounds easy, when you actually know in your portfolio of advertising what's highly effective, then it's easiest to keep advertising the stuff that works and stop advertising the stuff that doesn't. And we never went and set a target of trying to get to 100% because we know we'd need new advertising and we didn't have a way of, confidently predicting at that stage what would be highly effective advertising ahead of putting out on air so you know there was some clear we did a lot of research using single source data but we employed Aaron Bass to look at over 500 copies of ours and our competitors and try and, and we had a set of hypotheses around what would be great advertising we didn't think we'd ever get a color by numbers approach but we wanted to shorten the odds of producing great advertising and we got 
some good feedback on that, some good correlation in terms, for example, generating an emotional response was a highly correlated driver of, of effective advertising. Not always, but a highly correlated uh, driver, which said that's part of our ambition. So our ambition from a creative sense became, you know, we want to make people laugh or make people cry. That's, that's, our, that's our creative goal, which gives you a framework how to assess advertising, how to brief it in and how to drive that. And we want, wanted to make sure we were not separating our media strategy and our advertising strategy. That, that, that was very clear that they are intertwined in terms of, you know, how do we think about what we need within each medium to make this work? And how do we look for those big campaign ideas that drive that? So I want to highlight that because I think that was a really important point that you made that going from 40% to 70% ultimately sounds hard, but, you know, without measurement, certainly it would have been probably impossible, let's be real. But with the benefit of now the sudden clarity of measurement, now you look at it and now that you know this one succeeded, this one failed, what do we see in this one? What do we see in that one? You know, that gives you a path, if you will, to to uh, improvement that gives you a path to getting your weaker performers performing better, your, your, your stronger performers doing even better. You know, I mean, you start to get something that you can really learn from in terms of the campaigns that you're doing instead of kind of like just being left with gut feel, which really is, is probably where you were before, you know, in terms of yeah, not absolutely. really knowing, you know, and it opened up stuff we didn't realize because what we what was happening is we've got micro tests happening all over the globe. Every time we're airing something, or changing our media flighting strategy, you know, we're, we're actually getting real tests happening. Now, unless you're collecting data around that, you're missing a massive, a massive learning opportunity. And so what we realized is that, you know, we started off with single source and it helped us understand the, the rate of decay within certain categories of messages in terms of when did it stop impacting sales performance? And we could measure that. And that told us a lot to do with our media flighting. A lot of it told us around the, the creative power of, of each individual copy. You start marrying those up with cost of media in a, in a market, with your brand profitability and your brand size, and then you can start to get down to, okay, each individual brand with a, we had one to four star advertising with three and four being effective advertising. If you've got three star advertising on a big brand, we know that it's covering the media costs. It's generating surplus funds to re reinvest back in. Even if you've got three or four star on a small brand, it's not going to generate, it's not going to cover your media costs simply because of the, the size of the brand, how many latent users you have out there that you're going to prompt their memory to use, which tells you from a portfolio point of view, you have to invest in your core brands and be very selective about which small brands you want to grow. And then you need to invest on those year after year to make them large brands. But often we would see marketers and, and brand managers get excited by little niche brands and drive all of their investment behind these, which you can never cover your, your media costs. And, and your big brands start to decline and the, the uh, message impact decays and suddenly you're losing revenue to be able to reinvest. So yeah, lots of things came out when you start measuring these things in a way that we never understood. And I think you raise a really good point there, which is, I mean, you, you raised a number of points, but one of those is that the benefits of this evidence-based approach was not just to the ad creative. Uh, it also impacted things like your, your media, you know, your media buys, your media schedules, you know, your approach to flights, like, uh, you know, like how long should an ad stay on air? 
and, and I guess there are dividends there as well, because if you, if you have a great ad, maybe it can stay on air a little bit longer, you know, which of course is delivering another value proposition because ads are expensive to produce. So if you have to make less of them, but they're, they're great. You know, I mean, there are just so many different ways that you see the benefits of this that, in that terms of huge. the value proposition. Yeah, portfolio management, the whole lot, but yeah, you talked about, you know, how long can you leave an ad on? So we all had our own individual beliefs and you know, naturally, and I was as guilty as anybody. I became a brand manager. I worked on a new brand. I wanted to do what? I wanted to change the packaging. I wanted to do a new ad. Got to marketing director. Yeah, the same thing. You start to say, okay, well, I want to stamp my uh, personal impact on these brands by producing you know, great new advertising. But often that's not the issue that's, that's impacting the opportunity to grow. And so if you've got a a measurement that can tell you your advertising is not the problem, your media flow is not the problem, you can start to look elsewhere. And we we actually found in all of the, the work we did in the decade that I was in charge, I think we found one copy in one brand in one market that started to decline in its impact. It basically had wear out. We, we were never found any other copies that had worn out in that period of time, which really challenges us in terms of how much new creative do you need in that environment. I'm not saying you didn't have to look at other mediums and how you do that, but in the video format advertising, you could reduce what we call non-productive media and reinvest that in reaching more people, which would drive your sales more rather than churning out more ads that reached the internal audience because we liked to watch them, <laughs> but we didn't spend enough behind them to reach more and more people. This wasn't something I was pointing a finger at other people, I'd come through a career of behaving a certain way, which was free of evidence and a lot of subjectivity in there and a lot of gut. And sometimes you got it right. Often you didn't, uh, but you didn't know when or why you got it right or when or why you got it wrong. And I think that that's the power of the discipline of bringing you know, some, some good evidence-based scientific approach to this. You know, there's another strand in that story around the creative as well, which is when you decide that you're going to focus on great creative in your star rating system that you talked about, the threes and fours and not the ones and twos. If you look at what's happening in the industry today, Bruce, it, it really feels like the industry is going the other way. It really feels like the industry is all about more ones and twos. You know, it's about targeted ones and twos. You know, it's about saying, instead of spending half a million dollars on one commercial, let's go out there and spend, you know, lots of $10,000 uh, ad spends for lots of campaigns that can be highly targeted, you know, maybe not as moving emotionally or something. And that just feels like the direction that we're, we're, we're we seem to be going as we move to all these new platforms and, and, you know, try to spread our creative dollar a lot further, but, you know, at the expense, I think of great creative. And, th and this is one of the things I really encouraged across our agency networks was that I wanted our media agencies working with our creative agencies not receiving creative and then just going off and doing what they wanted because we wanted to look for opportunities there. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how effectively we buy the media, how we fly that, how well targeted it is. If the product we're putting in front of the potential consumer isn't engaging them, then it's all wasted money. So they have to work hand in hand to say, you know, how do we know where we're really challenging different ways of buying media and targeting media, but doing it with a product that is actually going to work and a piece of copy in whatever format it is that's going to work. If we don't know that, then it's just, you know, I'd never let somebody handle my personal finances from that point of view. If they have no idea of what, you know, or what we're investing in and whether that's worthwhile, then, you know, 
I don't really want you handling my finances. And we were custodians of our shareholders' money. So we had to take the same approach. And I guess since it's a privately held company, you felt that maybe even a little bit more directly. Yeah, <laughs> You're talking with them in front of so yes, you did. You did see the shareholders. So yeah, and they were passionate people about the business. But you just fair felt, therefore felt that you know, I feel like this is part. You know, I don't own the business, but I feel connected, connected to that business. So Bruce, you had an approach, and and I can't emphasize this enough that it wasn't about data. You know, because again, I think a lot of people are moving to data very aggressively. But it's very different from what we're talking about in this conversation in terms of, you know, evidence-based empirical generalizations, you know, it's, that's, that's science. That's like the application of science. So, so you came into the role, you know, you, you, you brought this religion of, of science. I mean, of course it was there, but you, you heavily sharpened, you know, its focus, you brought this science. But I think the greater achievement that you had was in how you managed to cultivate the culture you know, you, you had a culture of people who thought like that, you know, you, you had your AVI score. So for the benefit of the, the audience, this four point system that, that Bruce was talking about, about whether it was a one star, two star, three star, or four star creative. And again, three and fours being kosher and acceptable, a good creative and ones and twos, you know, being things that needed to get to waste basically that had to get out of the system. So, so you had this AVI system you know, everybody in your culture began breathing AVI. Everybody thought of their campaigns in terms of AVIs. I mean, you you cultivated yes. a culture around that AVI score. How, how did you do that? How did you go from, you know, a company <laughs> that really had none of this, in, in, you know, specifically around that, and then suddenly everybody is, is, is talking to each other and the whole conversation is all AVI? <laughs> I think, well, firstly, we did make the breakthrough. We, we, had to simplify the way we talked about it. So, you know, the one, two, three, four star, there were numbers behind those. There's no use talking numbers. You, you actually wanted to get into something that people could automatically embrace and be proud of. And so I think just, you know, tearing it from that point of view was was important. But it does go full circle to the conversation with the CFO, which was suddenly there were different discussions happening around the boardroom, around each management team discussion, that there was transparency. But, you know, instead of and our and poor accountability, and accountability, accountability, our poor manufacturing colleagues would have to go, th go through the hoop for hundred thousand dollar investments and, you know, and really do thorough post analysis of, you know, what we've done in a factory or a new line or whatever. We were spending billions of dollars across the globe and not being held accountable. So I think it changes the perception of the marketing organization when you're sitting there saying, yes, we're at 45% of three and four star advertising, but we want to improve and we'll give you that credibility. And it's no longer, you know, we're, we're self-reporting on that. And I think everybody in marketing got very good feedback from the other disciplines, from people who were possibly seeing us as a little bit flaky <laughs> up until then to now, okay, well, these guys are running the business. And it goes back to you know, my time back in Russia. What I found was I had to move from talking marketing speak to actually talking business speak. You know, where should our next investment go? Should it go to route to market? Should it go to a product improvement? Should it go to increasing our advertising? How do we make those trade-offs? Well, you needed to have the right data to make better informed. You're never going to get exactly perfect solutions, but better informed data. 
And I think the team that I was working with and their, and their teams responded to that because they wanted to be taken seriously. And I think you can't deny the power of having informed discussions with other divisions to have a combined approach to growth. And growth as a team sport, it's not marketing's responsibility, it's not sales, it's not R&Ds, it's not manif- If you don't have all of those divisions working together and saying, what trade-offs do we need to make and where do we need to make that investment, then you can't, you can't drive a true team approach to growth. What was interesting, I was just just going to reflect, we're talking a lot of science. One of the big things I had to overcome culturally was this idea that, okay, we're going to be looking at data and making every decision based on the next piece of data we can come in. I I try to say marketing is much closer to something like architecture. (laughs) So if you're building brands or like if you're building big, you know, amazing structures or buildings or bridges, then you have to have an understanding of the laws of physics and you have to apply your creativity and your creative solutions to overcome some of those challenges. And so the same thing we want to drive through is we're not sitting here saying, okay, we wait for the next data point to make a decision. What we're saying is what is the data telling us where we need to focus and how do we apply our creative solutions to solve that? And then how do we measure those solutions to make sure that they actually are solving it? And if they're not, we keep going through the creative iteration. And that helped enormously both within internally and with our external agency partners to, to tell them that I actually want you to push the creative needle harder because what we know about our user base is that they don't know much about us and they're not interested in us. There are a few people out there loving us. And so our, our advertising, both in the media approach and the creative approach, has to really get the disinterested person to take notice of us. So that's a huge creative challenge. But the science tells us that that is the challenge. Stop thinking that they're brand loyalists out there that are just loving everything we do and we'll build this ridiculous level of loyalty because we we can't. It's a really important principle. One of, I think, Ehrenberg Bass's real contributions was in moving the industry away from the Pareto principle, you know, which is kind of like 20% of our of our customers deliver 80% of our value, which basically means ignore the rest, just focus on that 20%. Yeah. But of course your growth comes from, you know, your growth actually comes from that, that, that 20%. I mean, it's, it's actually not really a 2080 principle. That's just a, 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 an icon, if you will, but, but your growth actually comes from your light consumers, not from your, your heavy consumers. And so, so, you know, to your point, if you want to communicate with light consumers, they're not going to be the people who are going to get excited when they see the product up on screen. <laughs> you know? We're not Disney, they're not, or you know, Warner Brothers, they're not waiting for the next installment of a pedigree ad or a Snickers ad. They're just not sitting there doing that. So we, we really have to delight and surprise them in how we reach them. And you know, I always had a, you know, a simple gauge as to what's great creative and it's, you know, do I want to watch this again? Am I going to call my wife in from the other room to see this ad because it's just bloody funny or it's making me cry or whatever. I mean, if, if, yeah, if, if, if it can do that, then we know emotion helps you encode memory as well. And I think our whole media strategy is about nudging memories. That, that's, that's what we're about. We're just trying to nudge and refresh those memory structures built around our brand and our category. And if we can do that successfully, then in the next purchase occasion, will come to mind and it's, it's as simple as that so back to the question of the culture how did you i mean you you fought it at first but eventually you know you 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 embraced this new truth and and it became part of how you came to view the world 
but how did you get the organization? I mean, how is it that you got that culture happening all the way down to, you know, the coalface, all the way down to the grassroots of the organization? How, how did, did, uh, how did that change happen so pervasively through the culture? Yeah, I don't, I don't think it was a single approach, but yeah, you, know, you have to engage at every level. As I said before, I, I had the support of a great CEO at the time of starting this journey, uh, who, who was marketing incredibly marketing savvy, and he was interested in, in pushing this through. For me, you have to set this up for people to, as I said before, to explore themselves and to fail as well, and to be and to argue back because we never had all the answers, and we're not saying we do. So, if people could genuinely come and say. I want to challenge this element of what you're pushing and they could bring data to us, then we would learn better. And so we encourage that. Uh, the team that I had around me, the, the segment CMOs, they went on their own journey of pushing this down. So I wasn't, yeah, you know, it wasn't Bruce saying this or Bruce saying that. It was, you know, it was them learning along the way. And I think you also have to make sure people are allowed to fail and we learn from failure. I helped that I'd come through Mars for so long. I was 14 years before I was in the CMO role. So I had done a lot of things, a lot of failures in my, in my career, some spectacular ones, luckily on small markets. Yeah, my two years in New Zealand was pretty terrible. But we swept those under the carpet. And that's not a learning organisation. So we had to encourage people to say, we did this. We now understand why it didn't work. Let me share that with you. And that was very liberating. So people could be rewarded as much for success as they were for failure. Now, we didn't get all the way there, and it's hard to change that culture. But And I would say that if I had to advise anybody going forward in terms of the culture you want, you do want people to be confident enough to go out and fail. And then, but fail cheaply. not you know, Fail spectacularly, but fail cheaply. So don't bet the whole house on red 23 go out and learn about that and then bring back and 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 if you're not failing you're not learning so uh, i know that's a cliche but it's, it's truth because you've got to push the boundaries of whatever you're doing whether it's a, you know, a media strategy a, a product strategy a copy strategy a route to mark strategy you want you want to push those boundaries and if you're not failing you can't be pushing the boundaries because no one can get 100 right so you can't you've got to reward people for taking that jump doing it efficiently so they're not losing a lot of money but then spreading what we learn uh, and you know if i could be proud of one thing that was the culture i tried to build was that you know you can stand up in a room and say i did this it didn't work but this is what we learned and we you should wonderful applause for that going back to the story of the chateau <laughs> in in uh, outside uh, in france outside paris um you know, the, the, the way that we first began collaborating was that, you know, you had this AVI data um, and you, you wanted to learn more about, okay, well, these ones were successful. These ones were not successful. Now let's get at the next layer. Why? Why was something yeah. successful here? And why was it not successful over here? And, you know, for, for the benefit of the audience, it, you, you would not be able to pick the difference. Like if you looked at two ads, it's not obvious that one succeeds and one fails. The two ads look very similar. They look like, you know, they look very, very, very similar in their approach. And in fact, humans are not very good at picking, you know, the one that ultimately succeeded and the one that failed. But we, we came in, you know, to see if, you know, the new neuro measures and things like that could make a difference. And of course, going back to your original point, because so much of this is about emotional response and whether you evoke an emotional response. And so, of course, if you can measure that emotional response more directly, well, then 
you know, hopefully there's a, a basis there for assuming that that could deliver some benefit. And in fact, it did. It was very successful. You know, we, we went from traditional metrics being about 58% accurate in terms of identifying what would have been threes and fours to about 78%, you know, accuracy and even higher when we were looking at very specific genres, like particularly funny, funny ads and, and things. So, you know, that, that was a great project. We certainly learned a lot from that project. Again, not only in terms of the, the results of the study, but in terms of interacting with you all and seeing how, how your culture works to kind of like systematically keep digging in to understand not only the, the what, but why, why was it that this ad was successful? Yeah, and it was, a, it was a good, a, you know, a very powerful initiative. And we, we set ourselves two targets when we first started looking at the 40%. One was we wanted what we called raise the floor, which was just let's make sure more of our media money goes into what we identify as effective advertising. And that's, you know, once you've done the portfolio review, it's relatively easy to do that. But we also wanted to increase the strike rate of the ads that we do. And the reason we end up engaging with you, Dwayne, was that we did a boot camp of our top 100 advertising generators in, in, the, in the business and with our agency partners with a single source copy. So you're really testing you know, how good are they are saying, I would put money behind this or I would not put money behind it. It's very simple. And we we're targeting, you know, we wanted them to at least you know, identify the top, you know, the top third of ads that you would want to put money in and be in that top third, get, get it right more than 66% of the time and get it right six, more than 66% of the time with the ones you'd stop. So you don't want to put crap on there and you don't want to not put good stuff on there, you know, hold it back. And we found that basically other than a handful of people who got in that elite performance of being able to pick good ads and stop bad ads, it was about 50-50 split. So we realised that, you know, we need other mechanisms to help those people make judgment calls. And so that's part of the whole learning culture is that we've got this great body of proven ads that work or don't. Let's use that to understand more about how to make those decisions. So and it never stops. If, if you get the right evidence in, in place, the opportunity to, to use that, to use that data, if it's highly yeah, repeatable and predictive, is just enormous. Now, of course, your challenge is even bigger than the way that we've been discussing it so far, because in, in your CMO role, that's a global role. You know, that's not, you weren't CMO for a country, for the US market, you were CMO for the world. And when you talk about the world, the world is a pretty diverse kind of place. You know, marketing in China is very different to marketing in Russia, which is very different to marketing in the United States. And, and of course, the, the other thing that we should qualify is that your access to the data would have varied enormously as well. Like what you call single source data, you know, and the quality of that single source measurement would have been, would have varied enormously market to market as well. How did you go about tackling, you know, with this approach that you had now, you love this approach, you know, it's, it's useful, it's productive, it's helping you eliminate waste. Now you want to kind of like apply that on a, on a, on a global basis, or at least in certain key markets. How, how do you go about doing that? Yes, it was challenging because firstly, at a certain level of market size and media spend, it wasn't appropriate to say, let's put single source into every single market around the world. You were spending too much of your money on the research and not enough on spending. So we had to try and say, okay, are there groups of markets that the ads would, you know, be more predictable? Uh, if, you know, if you had successful 
piece of copy in X, Y, and Z markets, then these other markets should follow that because it's a better it's a better estimate of performance than somebody sitting there themselves guessing it. So we had to do that, and then we had to check the cultural differences. And then yeah, I I worked in Russia. I had to rely on talented Russians around me to pull the ad together because I, I didn't speak the language. I didn't have the whole the cultural background. I could set the ambition of what we're trying to achieve, but I had to really trust those people because having an expat in a market trying to set advertising was is almost impossible. So we wanted to devolve that down into, into talented people. And if there were expats overseeing those that were not native to those countries, then you know, it's more about what's the ambition we're trying to drive. And we did see some interest. You know, we saw ads travel across many cultures. We saw some, and you were involved in a you know, piece of work we did in China where you know, on certain ads, we just, just humour did not carry. And it actually turned people the other way. Uh, there was a Skittles spot that, that I remember well that was... Uh, you know, the whole idea and Skittles is pretty off the wall advertising to start off with. But yeah, if you ate Skittles and you'd break out in Skittles box and you know, Skittles would start popping up around your skin and and the other person would pluck them off your skin and eat them. Uh, in China, that was just terrible. People just reacted very, very poorly to that and did not find the humour in that at all. So it was important for us to try and figure out why or what sources of humour is. And yeah, you, know, you, you have an ongoing learning process to do that. But Again, you're looking to find the holes in your mechanism as well, not just to say, you know, great, we've got single source, it's working, let's just apply these ads everywhere. You have to road test them to see where are the boundaries. Again, good science. Where are the boundary conditions on what can apply and what can't? And we did find some of those. I think there were certain markets where the data quality, I'm not sure, was as reliable as I'd like it. Uh, And therefore, were we making decisions in those markets on data that maybe it wasn't as reliable and in hindsight i would have liked to test road test single source in those markets to make sure that our predictions were actually playing out in in certain geographies uh, we didn't do that so that's probably a regret how do i know this piece of research that we're doing is working uh, i was very confident in well-developed markets with good data sources i was less confident we didn't do enough testing in that so and that's not a shame you should you know you should put your hand up and say I want to go prove that this isn't right or isn't working so I can improve it uh, rather than just blindly following it. And I, pr- I probably let that slip underneath the, the carpet too easily. You know, you were, you were talking about the China research. I remember being shocked at the data when we looked at it. I mean, absolutely shocked at the data because I mean, you expect some variation, but generally the way that variation looks when you're measuring across cultures is about the intensity, you know, is something as funny yes. in one country, you know, um, in, in the US market, things tend to be a lot stronger, a lot weaker, other cultures, maybe it's a little bit more subtle, you know, but generally the trends, when we did the China stuff, we're looking at people physiologically, remember, we're seeing the data of their body's reaction to this content. And people were reacting in, in patterns that were completely different to anything we had seen. And it just highlighted it to us that, well, it, it just highlighted again, how we can't make assumptions, you know, that there, that, that, that everything that we do, you know, we really need to get to points where we have less assumption in our industry and more evidence to kind of like really guide our, our, our decisions. And certainly that, 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 that kind of highlighted that in that particular data, just particularly around how different the Chinese market was to, 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 to Western markets. Now, Bruce, you alluded to this earlier, but I want to pick up on this theme a little bit more. And that is that your work on 
this culture of growth on applying scientific principles towards the culture of growth was not really limited to the marketing function within Mars either, which I think is again, another one of those exceptional contributions that, that you made in your career, which is you actually worked hard to collaborate with other parts of the business and to make sure. So there were people from other divisions that were going through the, the courses that you were developing. I mean, there were a lot of efforts that you were doing to really bring this approach, you know, not just to the marketing function, but beyond the marketing function to, to other parts of the organization, really collaborating kind of like across the organization. Yeah, it stems from you know, my strong belief that growth is a team sport, that you know, there is no individual function that can drive growth. And also that you know, if you're a management team in a business, in a market running a segment, then you've got lots of choices as to where you want to deploy your, your money and your resources, not just money, people, a whole lot. So you really need to be able to break down what is it that is potentially holding the business back or where is the biggest opportunity to, to explode out. And yeah, we believe that went right across you know, from classical marketing stuff around media and, and uh, brand cop copy uh, through the sales impact on the distribution, quality of distribution, through to your product performance, through to your manufacturing scale and your R&D and your, your profitability of the brand. And so if you're not making those trade-offs, then you can end up investing in the wrong thing and, and solving issues that aren't there. So the goal was to develop a growth model, not a marketing model. Not a, not a media model, not an advertising model, but a growth model. And, and that was probably yeah, the biggest breakthrough is that we got a growth model around how to drive brand growth. And that was as relevant if you're sitting in manufacturing as it was if you're sitting in sales or marketing or finance. And it gave a, a framework and a language to have meaty trade-off discussions at the management table. And so I think that was a big breakthrough. Probably the thing that we were missing since I've left for transparency as it was too brand focused. So, so much of the growth is on how categories grow. So we weren't putting enough attention as you know, big category leaders about how to drive the category growth. Uh, and I've still, I'm still involved with Aaron Bass. I do one day a week with them as an industry professor and you know, working with you know, people there. Megan Emmett Teal has led this category growth initiative. And again, it's what you realize when you dig into this and you, you know, pick up... Uh, one stone, you realize, well, there's so much I don't understand about how businesses grow. We'll never, ever stop learning about this. And so I think just pushing us to, to say, okay, how could what, how could the growth model we pulled together back in Mars in 2012 be better now? Well, there's a lot of ways it could be better now. And there's a lot more science and research and understanding that happens. And so, you know, my strong push to everybody is that, it, that talks to me about my experience at Mars is that, yeah, it was it was good. It created some impact, but there was a lot of stuff we missed. A lot of stuff I missed, and a lot of stuff you could therefore continue to learn from it and push the needle further. Uh, and it's about developing exactly what you talked about before. It's a learning culture. Am I really interested in finding out where my assumptions are wrong and learning from that? Uh, and if you are, then yeah, you continue to grow, and the business will continue to grow. Now, Bruce, you, you retired and, and left not only Mars, but kind of like the, the, the industry, so to speak, at a fairly young age. You know, you, you had a lot of juice left in you to squeeze. <laughs> <laughs> what led to your decision to, to retire, you know, so young? I think my kids are two years apart. My youngest son was 18 at, at that time, and he'd 
uh, not at that time, sorry, uh, six years earlier, and uh, both of them said they want to move back to Australia. So Mars was fantastic. They let me be CMO for the last six years of my career from Australia, which, you know, a decentralised business that can, can work because I was spending a lot of my time travelling outside the head office anyway. But Australia is not the best location to to be a global CMO. And my boss always used to say, there's a desk right here. You can come here, stop complaining about your travel or the time zones or whatever. And it was true. And I think it's just it's just a period of time where I didn't want to move away from my family. They want to be based in Australia. They had followed me around the world all of their lives. And my wife and two kids had followed me. And so the time was now that they're in adults. We will base ourselves here. And I had a shelf life of how many planes, as much as I liked travel and moving everywhere, how many planes I could sit on and how many time zones I could go through in a, in a year was just wearing me. And I think you looked at that and I said, when my energy started to sag, it made a lot of sense to say, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to milk my role for the next five years, as attractive as that was, but not be able to give everything I wanted to give because I was just getting physically and mentally tired. So I made the, made the call, stayed in a capacity with Mars for the next couple of years in, in a kind of part-time consulting role and had great, you know, I've got great contacts back in Mars and great group of people there that uh, I still love to pick up the phone and, and chat with them. So, you're, you're like those athletes who, 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 who leave uh, at the peak of their career. <laughs> <laughs> you, were, you were really at the peak of your performance, um, but, but I, I, I understand what you're saying about the wear and tear, believe me. <laughs> yeah, you would. You're sitting there in WA. Yeah, my, my, my body has certainly endured lots of that, but, uh, but, but, but I, I certainly appreciate that. Bruce, what advice would you give now? So if you were looking at the, the new generation of, of uh, media, advertising, marketing researchers, knowing what you know, having experienced what you experienced, you know, seeing where the industry is, you're still engaged. You know, what would your advice be to, to this new generation of researchers? It's about sounding like an old fossil preaching from the mountain. You know, I, I think <laughs> people have asked me, what, what do I value most in, in people in, in business? And uh, curiosity for me is, is what I value most. That people need to look at the area they're in and say, yeah, how does it tick? But then also look at the area they're not in. You know, look at other other businesses, other disciplines, and say, how does that work? And I think people who are genuinely curious and want to learn more about something and are willing to be proven wrong will develop into much, much more effective managers or business or individuals. And I think that's my advice is, you know, stay curious, stay skeptical. Curiosity and skepticism are not mutually exclusive. Actually, they are together. You should be skeptical of everything that's being put in front of you from a research point of view. Is what we're suggesting repeatable and therefore predictable and be willing to be proven wrong. But yeah, healthy degree of skepticism and a huge dose of curiosity, I think, just gets the better results. I do want to commend you as well, Bruce, for what I think of as your greatest virtue, which is your humility. You know, you, you've talked throughout this podcast about, you know, your, your, your openness, your receptivity, almost your hunger. It's like you want to be proven wrong all the time. You know, you, 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 you truly em embrace family would say role. something different to that. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you truly embrace that role with, uh, you know, with a, a particular style and approach that, that made you approachable. You know, I think everybody in the organization felt you were approachable. There, there was never really that sense that, 
you felt you were better than anybody else. You know, there was always really that willingness to listen, you know, to be open to, to being challenged, uh, to be open to being proven wrong. And that that is just such a, a, a great quality. And really at the core again of, of the culture of science, you know, the culture of science is about, you know, that receptivity uh, to, to being proven wrong, you know? So, so it's, it's, it's just such a wonderful, wonderful trait. And th there's of course a lot more detail in, in the story and, 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 and in a one hour podcast, we're not going to be able to cover all of it, but, but truly what you achieved at, at Mars was exceptional. It truly is, is in this legends league because, you know, not only is there, the significant cost savings, but again, there's the the lasting impact in terms of you know the legacy of the culture. So you know, kudos, uh, huge achievement. Uh, you know, CMOs around the world really would benefit enormously from from learning from your life lesson. Thank you so so much. Uh, Thank you, Duane. That's, that's very very generous. Thanks a lot. I appreciate that. And of course, we want to thank you, the audience, for joining us today. Uh, remember, if you enjoyed this podcast to, to tell your friends about it and make sure you follow it so that you get the next episodes automatically loaded up and leave comments, feedback, anything you can to do to help the podcast. And if you're interested, stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a little promotional message from, from Media Science. So I'm Dwayne Vaughn, CEO of Media Science, thanking you once again for your participation today and thanking you again, Bruce, for, for sharing your insights with us. Thanks until our next episode of Legends of Media Research. Almost every major innovation in the TV advertising industry over the course of the past decade was first tested by media science researchers. Whether you're talking about video ads on mobile phones or limited interruption ad pods or program context effects or brand integrations or pause ads or picture-in-picture -picture ads or six-second ads or interactive ad formats. <laughs> I mean, the list goes on and on. All were first tested by Media Science. Media Science is the leader in media innovation research. So when you're looking for media or advertising innovation research, collaborate with Media Science. Learn more at mediascience.com.